Welcome back to episode 30, where I catch up with Dr. Lucy Hone. In this episode, Lucy shares insights on resilience, anxiety, and coping with disruption, challenge, change, and loss. Regarded as a thought leader in the field of resilience psychology, tragic circumstances forced Lucy to focus more closely on grief when her 12-year-old daughter was killed in a horrific motor vehicle accident. Lucy is a senior fellow at the University of Canterbury, an internationally sought-after professional speaker, a best-selling author, and award-winning pracademic. That is, Lucy has a real gift for turning complex science into usable tools. COVID-19 saw her TED talk, titled Three Secrets of Resilient People, go viral, making it one of the top 20 most-watched TED Talks of 2020 and the most-watched of any New Zealander. It is such a privilege to have sat down with Lucy and cover so many topics surrounding mental fitness and well-being that all of us can relate so much to. For all of the links, books and resources mentioned, please refer to the podcast description. Otherwise, I hope you'll enjoy hearing from Lucy just as much as I did. Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. Good morning, Lucy, and thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with me. Many people will know of you and your incredible work in the space of mental well-being and resilience. So I think a really good place for us to start is by defining what is resilience and why is it important in our lives. Thanks, Kushla, and to everybody who's listening today, it's a real privilege to be on your show. So I just think that is a very good place to start with what is resilience, because frankly, it is a word that we are all bored of hearing. Um, um, Particularly, we're really frustrated, I think, with being told that we need to be resilient without being taught how. So let's start with the terminology. Um, And in our work, we refer to it as the our capacity to steer through all types of adversity so that you can either get back to feeling good and functioning well or continue to feel good and function well despite whatever's going on. We particularly believe that our capacity for resilience, a a big component of that is being able to learn as you go And so you'll notice that in our definition, there is no reference to bouncing back because we don't believe you ever go back 
you know, all, all of these experiences that we have to cope with in life, all of the disruption, challenge, change, uncertainty, really shape us. And so we're all about, you know, what can you learn as you go um, to enable you to continue to grow that capacity for resilience? Mm. And do you think it's with resilience, it's not just major things in our life? Do you think there's little things every day that help us be more resilient? Such a good question. And I absolutely agree with you, Kushla. So um, basically, the research shows that humans use resilience for in four different ways. Firstly, we do so in early childhood. It is your capacity for resilience that enables you to get through testing times. So, you know, whatever that might be, emotional neglect, physical abuse. Um, and then as adults, we have three uses of resilience. And that the first one is just to get through everyday moments that challenge us. And it seems that we all have quite a lot of those nowadays. Um, so, yeah, everyday stresses and strains from the moment that someone nicks your parking space or your boss gives you some absolutely ridiculously unfeasible deadline or when you're out there on, you know, some mountain run and something goes wrong and you just, you know, really want to spit the dummy. So that's your resilience really comes to play there, enabling you to forge through whatever it is. Um, and then there's the big stuff. That's the third use is all of the divorce, dementia, bereavement, um, all of those losses that, frankly, we all have to sadly navigate at some point in life, whether that is, you know, physical impairment, um, mental illness, um, infertility, you know, the list is long, sadly. Those first three are all about how we respond to events that happen to us. And the fourth use of resilience is that it enables, it is, it is this quality that enables us to move forward, um, to bravely venture out. And whether that is to learn a new operating system or a new piece of software, um, or whether it is to talk to a new friend, you know, if you're a 12-year-old at school, or whether it is to take on a new challenge like the coast to coast, whatever it is. So, four uses of resilience and I, I think that is a really important point to make and what we do in our work is sort of break this stuff down so that people just understand it better mm. and when we're born we're born with all sorts of different traits and strengths and weaknesses are some of us naturally born really resilient or is it something we all have to learn yeah it's um so certainly not a fixed trait it is something that you can learn and you'll note that I've been using this word capacity because it's not a fixed trait it is actually a whole amalgam of ways of thinking and acting and being the environment in which you live in the policies in which you live in so it's impossible to be resilient if I'm thinking of black lives matter here and you know it's impossible to be resilient if you're living in an environment that continually and repeatedly um, is, you know, going against you. It, you. You are either stigmatized or prejudiced against. So there are some traits, though, that do personality traits that actually do enable 
resilience more easily. And that is things like extroversion, optimism, agreeableness, which are some of the big five personality traits. So certainly some people find it easier than others. They do have that unfair advantage. Um, but that doesn't mean that you, it isn't a learnable skill. You know, absolutely, I should say, it is a learnable skill. Um, we, I went and studied my master's at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And they, I went there because they had been running the Penn Resilience Program, which is a training program for students in schools to teach them to be more resilient. And they'd had some really good results on that. So that's why I chose that place for my master's. And when I arrived there, they then had picked up the contract to train all American forces to be as mentally fit as they had traditionally been physically fit. So again, you could see that, you know, there's this really deep belief that we can train people to be more resilient. We can actually train even the most diehard pessimists to capture their reflexive, negative and pessimistic um, view of a situation and test that, challenge it and come up with all alternate, you know, alternative interpretations. So it is possible if you are a diehard pessimist or you are a diehard perfectionist, these are skills you need to learn. But it's, you know, it's possible. But um, that's where cognitive behavioral therapy and ACT both come in, which are really great mental skills um, therapies, but you know, let's drop the word therapy and just think of them as mental skills mm. training you can go and do. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it's one thing in life to be an expert, but it's another to have lived experience as well. And for you, you had to go through the unimaginable loss in your own life. So, using their expertise and knowledge, what do you think were some of the key factors that got you and your family through such an awful time? Um, yes, so for those listeners who aren't aware of our story, I was already a resilience researcher and had been working in Christchurch in that post-quake environment to help others get back on their feet um, in the year, you know, after the terrible February quake. And I thought that that was my kind of calling, my moment to put all of the research and training I'd done to good use. But sadly, in 2014, we hit personal family tragedy, unimaginable tragedy, really, when um, on a Queen's birthday weekend, our 12-year-old daughter, Abby, and her best friend, Ella, who was also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine, were all killed um, on a backcountry lane in Rakaia when a driver sped through a stop sign. So, so like you say, Kushla, you know, I went from supposedly being this great, this resilience expert helping other people get back on their feet and training them to suddenly having to work out which parts of my training were actually going to be useful to help myself and my family, um, my reduced family, cope with Abby's loss. Um, and, you know, I was told, I didn't know at the time, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work this out, that parental bereavement is known as the worst form of 
loss, of course. Um, it goes against what we hope for in our life order and all of those things. Um, but I do consider myself lucky that I'd had that training because it definitely did give me an immediate toolkit of ways of thinking and acting to draw upon that. And, and in my retrospect, my work um, after that event, I have seen actually how poor so many of the grief resources are. So I do feel extra lucky to have had that, um, all of that material available to me, you know, just in my head already parked there waiting to be um, woken up. And so the main things that it really helped us, that helped the training parts that really helped us navigate Abby's loss were that a big part of resilience psychology is understanding that when we are operating in a resilient mindset, we generally choose very carefully where we focus our attention and where you focus your attention has consequences, of course, for your emotions and your consequent behavior. So knowing how important that was, I was about to say encouraged me, but I could probably go stronger than that really. You know, knowing that forced me to force myself to think all the time, you know, is what you're doing helping or harming you in your quest to get through this? The way that you're focusing your attention right now, is that likely to be holding you back or helping you in your grief? Um, and to give you just a concrete example, we were told by victim support that we should go to the trial of the driver to, you know, to read out our victim impact statements. And I remember thinking, is that a good use of my extremely depleted attention and energy right now? And thinking, nope, that isn't because actually um, I don't blame the driver and I want him to remain a small part in this story for us. So instead, we decided instead of going to court that we would go and see our son's teachers at school and spend a bit of time with them and find out how they were going. And that is just a classic example of thinking, okay, I'm going to focus, choose where I focus my attention. And you're choosing to focus it always on the things that you can change and somehow accepting the stuff that you can't change. You know, it's easy to say, not so easy to do. But I would... Another technique I used is that I would give myself a rule that I was only allowed to two what ifs. So I'd only let myself say twice in my head, what if I hadn't booked that weekend away? What if we hadn't let her get in the car with her you know, friends that morning? And then I'd say to myself, come on, you know, this is a really poor focus of your attention. This is harming, not helping you. So um stop that and go and do something else. And people often in our training say to me, oh, yeah, the stop that bit, that's the hard bit. And yes, it is. And one of the ways, there are lots of ways you can do that. And, and essentially, everybody on this call has to find their own ways of doing that to halt your path of destructive thinking. And that can be moving from getting up, you're literally getting out of bed, standing up, moving outdoors it could be in in cbt they often teach you know those kind of um, elastic bands that we can have on our wrist particularly yeah. girls we have on our wrist from our ponytails um you could snap that really hard on your wrist marty seligman who 
is probably the most famous living psychologist who taught me. He was my mentor. He used to say to us, you know, slam your hand on the table, like really loud bang, um, or set a timer. But essentially, and his message, I remember his words so well, were nothing good comes from ruminating for more than a minute. So put a timer on, give yourself a minute, and then find whatever engaging activity it is that you can do to stop that thinking and put a halt to it. Um, so finding a friend is a really good thing too, or doing anything that is really engaging that absorbs your mind. Mm. And, and is the idea of like, say the elastic band on your wrist or slamming it on the table, is that literally to shock your brain out of the thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to make, to put a marker in the sand, I think to go, right, that's it. Um, and I often do do that. I stand up and move rooms and if it carries on, then I pick up my phone and phone somebody and go, just talk to me, talk to me about something. I need to stop thinking about what I'm thinking about. Um, so it's amazing what we can do with our brains. Um, and if this doesn't, if you're listening and this doesn't come easy to you and you are a perpetual ruminator, please know that this requires practice, which is where the CBT training or ACT, these are the two therapies that I would recommend. You can go and Google them and we might I, we might put a link in, Kushla. Yeah. But um, what they do is really make you think about where, think about your thinking, essentially. Um, and that is really powerful tool to relearn how to think in a more constructive, less destructive way. But as our clinical director, Dr. Emma Woodward, would say, you need to practice this stuff when it's easy so that it becomes easy when it's hard. Meaning you practice on the small stuff and by doing so, you are rewiring your brain, which means that over time, you are changing the neural pathways of your brain so that you learn your brain learns to stop going down the automatic negative interpretation route and over time you are making that other alternative neural pathway stronger so your brain and your thinking are more likely to go that way does that make sense it does it does uh, and firstly thank you very much for sharing your story for those who may not know about it and secondly can definitely relate to the rumor <laughs> ruminating <laughs> on silly thoughts um, and something actually I watched your TED talk quite a while ago on the I think it's the secrets of resilient people um, yeah and the key thing I did take away from that talk was stopping and thinking is this harmful or helpful and even with yeah. little day-to-day -day things like it might even be something totally not major like say browsing on social media and you start to think oh you know, comparing yourself to others or starting to have negative thoughts and you stop and think, is this helping me or is this just making me feel awful? You know, little things like that. It's um, actually really helped. <laughs> Thank you, Kushla. And, and actually, I mean, I honestly probably get an email or a message on LinkedIn or on Instagram or whatever, probably weekly from somebody globally who's watched my TED Talk and said, 
Oh, your helping or harming question has changed my life. Um, and it comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not my question. But um, yeah, it is extraordinarily powerful. And what I, as, what I love about it is what you've just described, the versatility of it. So literally, I can use it from, shall I have that? You know, do I really need this extra cup of coffee, that fifth glass of wine? Or, you know, and is that helping or harming me? Or that late night, you know, shall I watch the fifth episode of Bad Sisters? It is now quarter to midnight and I'm doing bedtime procrastination, which is such a great phrase. Um, um, so it is, but, you know, and to the really big things, you know, putting off having that mammogram, um, not talking to my uncle, brother, sister, teenage son, because they've really, you know, pissed me off sorry I can't think of better language um lazy I know um you know not making amends with them is that going to help or harm me in mm -hmm. the long run um so it is it is a great very potent evidence-based and practical question mm. yeah and I like it it's simplicity and anyone can do it and I think it's also helpful like I always think when I stop and ask myself that I'm like great I'm acknowledging that I'm doing something that's probably not that helpful for me which is a good yes. step in the right direction as well and on top of that if Dr Denise Quinlan who is my co-director and co-founder at the institute if she was here she would say she would remind me to say the best thing about it is that it puts you back in the driver's seat of your life and the kind of subtext is also this fact that you know what's right for you so I love that that it's it's kind of not undermining it's empowering isn't it to go actually if I am really brutally honest with myself and I ask myself that question I do know what's right and what's wrong for me and so it also helps you get over what we call the knowing doing gap when you know stuff but you forget to do it mm -hmm. really like that and canterbury we've been through quite a lot in the last 10 to 12 years <laughs> we've been through the christchurch earthquakes we've had the mosque attacks and then mm. like everyone else we've also been through the covid 19 pandemic I'm really interested to hear as a result of all those things and of course probably becoming more resilient are there different characteristics about Cantabrians compared to other regions of New Zealand? So um, I think there are and in fact we were asked Denise and I to contribute to a um, worldwide publication academic publication last year or probably the year before actually and when COVID in that first year of COVID where in an education context, lots of academics wanted to see, you know, how COVID was going to impact particularly the education sector globally. And so we ended up writing a piece about how the earthquakes had really changed the educational landscape in Canterbury. And we'd learned such valuable lessons and and changed practices across the sector in a way that better equipped us to cope with all of the disarray that COVID brought to the education sector. So as an example, some of your listeners will remember that in that post-quake environment, 
um, a campaign called All Right was created, and it was a what I would call a mass market social media um, well-being campaign. Actually, the first of its kind ever to be created anywhere globally. So it was. We should be proud of it because it was great work. Um, and those people at All Right did this amazing just resources and social media campaign to just get people talking and realizing about focusing their attention and helping their neighbors and giving back and all of this. And so what happened in the COVID, um, in those first few months of the pandemic, was that it was suddenly went from regional to national campaign. And all of the particularly education resources that had already been created around it, this fantastic weekly email that goes out to schools with a wellbeing program that is designed for teachers to use with their students immediately that week in the classroom, that was already there. And and we wrote, and there are countless examples of just how um, people have learned to behave differently because of all of what we have navigated in the last 12, what is it now, 11 years here. So I think, um, and didn't you mention to me that um, Canterbury had some of the best COVID vaccination rates? So I think that's fascinating. And, you know, that has to come from the fact that we are potentially better at choosing to focus our attention on the stuff that we can control. Um, We've got a better kind of collective resilience thing going on where, because being vaccinated is about the public good. It's about, you know, it's driven by population health data that says if we all do this, we're all more likely to survive and do better. Mm. So I think that is a really good example of the fact that people are, there is more of a sense of collective resilience here. Mm. Yes, of course, the mosque attack shows that we've still got huge racial problems. But I think um, in terms of our resilience, my experience is, yes, people are still struggling because actually as fast as people get a grip on resilience, the world just seems to get harder um but i do think there is a um yeah a, a sense that cantabrians have learned a lot they've also learned that resilience isn't just about hardening up the good old cantab way mm. that actually it's much more about um asking for help when you need it and leaning on your neighbors and helping your neighbors you know that's quite a different approach isn't it mm. Yeah, that did come from a conversation with my mum, actually, and we were just saying, you know, there's probably many different factors involved with the higher vaccination rate, but I do think Cantabrians have kind of had enough, and we're not really prepared to take further risks if we can help prevent something else from happening. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So for the athletes listening, with, say, training and doing really tough endurance events and that kind of thing, how can we practice being a more resilient athlete in our day-to-day training? So I think this firstly depends on um, who you are and what your goals are as an athlete. So I'm very aware that, you know, I did the, I trained for the coast to coast last year. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm in the same headspace as many of your listeners who are here today. Um, so But when you're facing, um, so let's think of a a tough moment. Um, You know, you're out there training and you just want to stop 
Um, and that would be, so that would be me. That might not be most of your people. They might be thinking, I'm not going fast enough. I need to push harder. But in both of us, both of those scenarios in that moment comes back to knowing your why, being really clear about your motivation and checking that your motivation is mainly intrinsic, not extrinsic. Um, and just to clarify that, intrinsic motivation is that you're doing it for you. Extrinsic is you're doing it for some external reward. Um, so it's okay to have both, but you definitely do need to identify. And I would suggest just taking a moment. Actually, really, if you're listening to this podcast, pause the podcast now. And if you're somewhere you can write down or write notes in your phone, just think about what is your motivation for completing in or um, competing in whatever event it is. Um, who are you really doing it for? Why are you really um, doing it? Why is it important to you? And then the other key point is to understand your barriers and enablers. So what are the things that get in the way of you achieving your goals. And so I'll give you an example. Um, my goal might be to go for a run today. So not even a long run. You know, I can say to myself, I'm going to do a 40-minute run today. I've already had two meetings this morning, and I've got one in a minute after this where I have to look smart. It's a Zoom meeting. And so unbelievably, that's actually going to get in the way of my run later because <laughs> this is how tiny our barriers can be. I put a proper bra on this morning so I can be smart for my meeting, which means that I haven't put my sports bra on, which means I've got to go and change all my clothes <laughs> later. And so I often laugh about this, that when I'm putting my underwear on in the morning, that's the moment where I actually have a choice about whether I'm going to exercise today or not. And um, I know when I say this to women, so many women laugh and nod their heads because they appreciate that. The, that pivotal moment that we go through. But I hate changing my clothes later on in the day, so it has to be avoided. So, But you have to work out all the little things that get in the way. And I recently was speaking um, to my coach about I wasn't getting out in the hills enough at the weekend. I was actually feeling quite lonely and a little bit depressed about my ability to get out and enjoy my hill running and so then we just broke down all of what would enable me to do more of that. You know, what actual small steps did I need to take to make that goal happen? So think of your goals not just as the big goal. So using the coast as an example, actually, you know, getting to the start line, number one goal, completing on the day, number two goal. Those are my goals. Other people might have slightly more time-focused, place-focused goals. And then think about your mini goals, you know, so um, make sure that you've got your planning in place. We talk about um, in terms of goals and hope, you know, knowing what you're hoping for. Hope actually from a psychological perspective has two elements to it. Um, it has this way power and willpower, we call it. So your willpower is your motivation. You've got to know that. But you've, this barriers and enablers bit is about your way power. You know, how are you going to circumvent some of the obstacles that are going to come up on a daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal basis? You know, so yesterday I booked um, two um, goes down the gorge with Top Sport and I hadn't done it before. 
this year, you know, yet this year. And I suddenly thought to myself, you need to get on to that because that is going to be a real enabler. And if you miss those slots, then that's going to be a real barrier. Actually getting onto the river in a safe way for someone like at my level, you've got to have support. So does that kind of, is that helpful? Mm, It is. That's really helpful. And I was also thinking when you were talking about that, it's also the difference between, say, motivation versus dedication. Motivation Mm. will come and go, but you need that deep why and your dedication to get through Mm. those days where you don't really want to get out and train. Yes. And actually, Richard Greer taught me um, my how to really get through that dedication bit on the bits that I don't want to go out with his fantastic 15-minute rule. Yes. Um, and so for me, that has been a game changer. And walking up hills. Um, so I did the Crater Rim at the weekend. And I just thought I just channeled my inner Richard because I knew he'd say to me, it is okay to walk up that first hill. You know, it's a pretty steep slog up to the top there. And I'd only been done, the longest run I'd done was 25 minutes for the last kind of four months. So I certainly wasn't half marathon fit. But because I walked up that first hill, I then had a fantastic run. And the younger pre-Richard me would have made myself run up that hill. And then I would have had nothing to give for the rest of the day. So it is about, you know, working out. Uh, they're effectively heuristics. These little phrases that you have in your head as well really help. So my 15-minute rule helps and just knowing that it's okay to walk up a hill is actually better for me than trying to slog at the beginning did you have a bit of a tumble on the weekend i'm just looking at your humongous battle wounds (laughs) they're quite bad aren't they everyone can't see them luckily but um yeah i did i was the i was about i'm not blaming it on the person behind me but somebody behind me said are we nearly at the top and I looked left to see where Ra Pucky was and whether it was very close and tripped up over a rock quite bad. You know, anyway, it's, they're quite bad looking, but they're getting better. So, yeah, I've got quite bad scuff marks down my, um, down my whatever you call those, arms. Whatever, yeah. yeah, down to my elbow. Um, and funny because I'm presenting tomorrow and I did think, oh, yeah, I probably don't really want to present in front <laughs> of an audience showing them my road, my path rash. I've got to find out something to wear. <laughs> and are you working towards coast to coast again? I am. Amazing. I um yeah, I've been kind of uh, um and that's, you know, goes back to the same conversation. So the day after it was cancelled, my husband and I, Trevor, were doing tandem two day last year. And was it I think it was cancelled um mm-hmm. on a Monday. And we both lay in bed Monday morning went, uh, I can't really be bothered to go and do any exercise, can you? And he went, Nope. And so it really brought home to us how much, how important it is to have that goal. And when it's taken away from you as 54-year-olds and 59-year-olds, it's pretty hard to keep that motivation going. And yet I've seen the science and I know that we have to exercise, sadly, six days a week for longevity. So I think, okay, you've got to take choice out of the equation then. You've just got to do it. So signing up again was the best option. We have, um, we've separated, not in, in marriage, but in tandem, um, because I never want to be in a kayak with my husband again. Thank <laughs> you. Everyone knows how they call them divorce duos. So we're not divorced, but we will be in separate kayaks. So we're doing individual two days. And um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't feel I've done an awful lot of training, but actually doing the Crater Rim 22 was 
a pretty pivotal moment, you know, for me at the weekend, I thought, and now I feel like it is possible. So next step is to get back to the river. Yeah. And you skimmed over the fact that you and Trevor still got out and did your own version of the Coast to Coast, even though your event had been cancelled, which I think is just awesome. Thank you. And um, that was down to two dear friends of ours. Um, who just messaged immediately and went, we'll take you. You can't have done all that training and not do it. And I think we are all realistic enough to know that hoping, you know, no one knows what's going to happen this coming February. Um, the world is a pretty disrupted place. So I'm hopeful, really hopeful. But they said we will take you over to the West Coast. So the four of us um, trucked off on a Thursday afternoon and did it Friday and Saturday and we live in Sumner, and so that was amazing because actually we then realised we didn't have to finish in New Brighton. We could actually come back to Sumner, so we did it the old way. And, yeah, it was it was amazing, challenging, and we did it in that last weekend of January, which was the most beautiful weather. So just the two of us out there on those roads, it was pretty amazing experience. And we did get help from Kushler with our nutrition, which we you almost doubled our nutrition our food intake and i thought of you again when i ran this weekend you'd have been really proud of me kushla i thought i ate a lot of food i came back full good good <laughs> probably helped with um such a good run <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> Um, to jump to a bit on the anxiety side of things now, because it's something so many of us experience and sometimes it just mm. feels like nothing will help. So what are some of your top tips to make some small steps in the right direction to manage anxiety? Yes, um, it's such a big topic and we all have different forms of anxiety. And um, I should start by saying if you... Actually, I'm going to start by saying that a resilient person experiences all emotions. So that we at the Institute don't like the fact that they're called positive and negative emotions because actually there's nothing wrong with the supposedly called negative emotions. You know, your fear, your experience of fear, of, um, of anguish, jealousy, anger, the, all emotions are just data and they are there to inform, educate, and teach us. So, of course, those negative emotions are absolutely vital because they are alerting you to the fact that there is something that you need to be acutely aware of. So that's why we have that fight or flight response. And without it, we wouldn't survive. You know, it, it is the mechanism that has enabled humans to adapt and survive across thousands of years so firstly they are important the the main difference though is that a resilient person experiences all emotions but they don't get stuck in one emotion and if you do find yourself getting continually stuck in one emotion whether that is anger or fear or jealousy you know any of them then you do need to get help because it's really hard to live like that, it will impede your functioning, it will impede, interfere with your relationships, your ability to perform, your productivity, um, everything, you know, so it's just a miserable way to live. So um, having said that, of course, um, good stress, some stress is good. So some amount of anxiety, you will know 
um, is performance enhancing as well. So the first thing I think to understand is, so what I'm essentially trying to say is there's so many different kind of types of anxiety and, and relating to fear as well. So the first one is to think to yourself, okay, the stress I'm feeling now, um, you know, I'm lining up on the start line. Is this good stress or 10 days before or, you know, a month out, the stress I'm feeling now, is it good stress? Oh, actually, it is good stress because it's reminding me I really do need to get out the door and go for that bike or go for that ride um, because that way I'm going to be better on the day. And an example of that for me is I get a bit anxious about biking in big bunches. So my way of getting through that and navigating it is to know that I need to make sure I do some bunch training before the coast. So you're, and you start by approaching it in small ways. So I've committed to doing Richard um, Coast, you know, the Team CP Sunday rides and some of the Wednesday evening rides, um, just to get me into smaller groups to start off with. And then there is the fear that, that some of us feel when we go on the river. Um, and again, I tell myself, my husband, the first time he faced up river, upstream, he said he pretty much got vertigo. It was so overwhelming. And I know he's not alone there. Um, so to actually tell yourself that that is, that's, again, that is a natural fear because you're out doing something that's really out of your comfort zone. And to put the parameters around it so that you feel safe. So one way, actually, when this is, this applies to all of life at the moment, when we're living in an environment and an era where there is so much uncertainty, one of the levers you can pull to help you navigate that level of uncertainty is to put as much certainty in your life as possible. So in your everyday life, you know, if you're feeling anxious, to establish really regular routines. And actually, this is something I learned in the earthquakes that when your brain is so traumatized and stressed in that kind of post-traumatic period after the earthquakes, and again, after Abby died, and again, after the mosque shooting, I remember thinking, okay, my brain is in full fight or flight right now. I need to steady it by putting in some really good routines, increasing the level of certainty around me visually. I know that too for me. I need to see sort of constant reminders of things that are constant in my life, which enables my brain to tell itself to turn back that fight or flight stress response. So by that, I mean things like, you know, we walk the dogs every morning and every evening. We go and get coffee from the same place. Um, I would make sure in times of high stress, like after the mosque shooting, that I was around very familiar people, um, in very familiar places, doing very familiar things. So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, I'm trying to give you different scenarios of anxiety that we all come across because, of course, what makes me anxious will be so different to what makes your, your listeners anxious and what makes you anxious. So if anyone is really struggling with anxiety, do go and find yourself some ACT therapy because that's a short course of like really six sessions with a great trained therapist. You can do it online and it will really help you um, find the way that works for you through that to better performance. 
And do you have any other suggestions of tools or websites that people could go to that are, are free? Yes, we've got, um, actually, I've written about, a bit about anxiety and we've got, I think, a podcast with Dr. Emma Woodward on anxiety um, where she talks about your um, internal radio, you know, the music, the um, what kind of music and what kind of words are playing on your internal radio and how to monitor those um, and bring them, calm them back down. One of the, so I'll share those with you and you can send them out with the podcast. One of the things, you know, she always talks about is, um, thinking about so you can do box breathing is another really good thing where you breathe in for the count of five you hold your breath for the count of five you breathe out for the count of five and you hold your breath for the count of five so you keep going around the box that's really good um the other thing is i've forgotten emma's exact thing but she talks about you know touch think three one thing that you can touch two things that you can see three things that you can um smell four things that you can hear and just go through your senses like that. And what it's doing is just train. It's just bringing the brain back to equilibrium. So we can definitely share some tools for people to read. Yeah. On. Cool. Yeah. I like those ideas and breathing so powerful, isn't it? Just slowing your breath down and focusing on that. It's just switches that nervous system. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So Lucy, with your own mental wellbeing and day to day, I, I hear that exercise is probably a big part of that for you, but what other things do you tend to do day to day to take care of yourself? Um, so um, I'm going to laugh and say the first thing I don't do is I don't manage to use my Headspace app. I just cancelled my Headspace account yesterday um, and it made me laugh actually because it's the third time I've downloaded Headspace and failed. So I just want everyone out there to know that you know, that's a really good example of trying to find what works for you and eventually going, okay, still not the thing for me. So um, certainly walking our dogs twice a day, you know, at 7 o'clock and about 5.30 every day, that really helps. It also, good time, just connection time, Trevor and I walk together. Um, and I, we work-wise, so I, at the Institute we have 13 people um, all over Aotearoa, and we do, Denise and I, so we're the uh, co-directors, we do coffee, what we call a coffee catch-up, um, probably three or three times a week, where we're not meeting, she's based in um, Wanaka, but we're not meeting for work. We might talk about work, but and we're not meeting for a specific task, because we do lots of that on Zoom, but we're actually just um, either on Zoom or on our Airbuds grabbing a cup of coffee and having a general check-in, which is our way of making sure that we're not teetering towards burnout mm -hmm. because we've, we're, pretty, we're pretty loaded up at the Institute, as you can imagine, since particularly we were already quite busy before the pandemic hit. Um, but nowadays we have a lot of global clients. We're, we're training um, 80 HR directors in 80 territories for one of the big household names currently. Um, and we, yeah, so we just do lots basically. So she and I, we have our own language that we know. Like she said to me this morning, I'm a bit crispy around the edges. <laughs> and so, and um, yeah, so we know we're each other's kind of check-in. And she and I both fully acknowledge that 
We talk a lot about the fact that resilience is comes from the way we choose to think and the way we choose to act. But it is not an individual pursuit. You know, all of us are only as resilient as our support networks enable us to be. And so having her as my work buddy check-in is pretty amazing. And I know when she needs help and she know, knows when I need help. I, I tend to drive. I, I go on overdrive. <laughs> you know, I'm just doing too much. And and we yeah we're pretty explicit you know about saying to each other hey this is looking like you're spinning a bit what can I do to help because one of the main drivers of course of burnout is workload mm-hmm. um one of them is lack of support one of them is not having your contribution valued and validated so we work pretty hard at making sure that we're doing all of those things for each other have you personally experienced burnout lucy no such a good question i haven't quite i did have one day um october's we're in october aren't we october's always the hardest month for us i've noticed a pattern on that because i guess we are still working in this year but also starting to work on the next year as well so it, it feels like you know really you've got so many plates spinning um, and because of that, I'm just very aware of it. And I have managed to get away and have a holiday um, just two weeks ago. And so that has definitely helped me. And I've done that. I couldn't obviously do that last year. Seriously, who took a holiday last year? Um, I, that's what the Coast to Coast was about, getting out. And um, But, for, yeah, so I am really strict about getting away from work. And I do have what I call my backcountry calendar, which is just a, you know, a wall chart. It's on the other side of the fridge here which I make sure I've got something in each month that I plan it at the beginning of the year, I buy it at the beginning of the year, and I make sure that every month has got something that will take me completely out of my work head and really, you know, get me away from it. So that seems to help. And if I've got months where I've got nothing in there, then I think, okay, yes, book a hut, do something, you know, to make sure you will get off, um, yeah, off the grid. I really like that idea. And by the backcountry, do you literally mean it would all be like hikes and tramps and? Yeah, I'm going to show it to you. Um, so this is what's left of it for a lot for this year. So I'm just looking at it yesterday, thinking, okay, I need to go back to it because it had quite a lot in it for May, June, and July, and August, and I just need to fill it up for the remaining months of the year. Um, for me, I do mean hikes and tramps. I also, our boys live. I'm based in Otatahi, and our boys are up in Auckland. And so I've got that in there as well because um, they're 24 and 22 now. And as a mum up there, I, I, you know, I want to be with them. So I need to make, that's for my psychological health, you know, and at the beginning of the year to think and regularly to think, okay, when am I going to see them? Because that's fine. I can live without them as long as I know I've got something booked and another opportunity to see them within a couple of months. So that just goes back to that whole kind of planning your pathways as well. I love that idea and I think that's something I want to integrate myself because it's so easy just to get into work mode and then you realise it's been months since you've even had like a weekend away or a break and you wonder why you're feeling so stale. (laughs) Yeah, and we used to be much better at it. I think unfortunately the pandemic has definitely stopped people from getting away in the the same fashion that we used to do and 
you know, so many people find it hard to get a holiday now. So um, if you haven't had a holiday, please take this podcast as your official prompt to go and book one. Because, you know, the burnout literature is really clear. You cannot just keep working. Um, you will burn out. And the other thing that's very clear from the literature is that people who love their jobs are sitters for burnout. Loving your job actually makes burnout more likely because you just don't say no to things. You get you derive a sense of identity from your work. You know, you're totally passionate about the outcomes, which leads us all to just keep saying yes, not no. So learning how to say no is a great tip. And if anyone wants to hear more of this, go and follow us on LinkedIn and both myself and Denise, because we often post about burnout and psychological safety and all those concepts there. One last question with that. How do we say no? Because it's very, very hard, mm. isn't it? Well, actually, you pra- it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You practice on small things. And actually, it isn't that hard. We just think it is hard. <laughs> because I that would be my worry and my challenge to everybody here. So go and say no to something this week. Yeah, when someone asks you something, say no. <laughs> and sadly, notice that the world does not fall apart. <laughs> they don't cry or, you know, or stamp their feet. They just go, oh, okay, fine, I'll go and get someone else to do it or I'll ask someone else. So you practice on the small things and that will give you more confidence that you're not letting people down and they don't think lesser of you because I think that is probably why we say yes. If The other thing is if people... If it is something that you know you actually want to do and you kind of have to do because you are the person to do it, then to negotiate with the person who's giving it to you, what are you going to take, which plate are you going to take down because you've just stuck a new plate up there spinning above your head and be really explicit about that. So to say to them, oh, this looks like it's going to be three or four hours work commitment from me. So... We had all agreed in our team meeting on Monday that this were these were my priorities for this week. Which one of those do you now want me to downshift because this one's come up to the top? So negotiate, you know, be realistic and people will respect you more for it. Mm. A real theme I've heard through the podcast from you today is we need to practice on the small stuff with everything, whether mm. it's so stopping to ask yourself, is this helping or harming? Um you know, changing your train of thought when you start ruminating or just like what you've covered now about being able to say no because it helps with the bigger, more intense stuff when it rises up. It's so true. And actually, I think there's a bit of a metaphor there about me saying how helpful Richard Greer's 15-minute rule is. So basically, that's kind of a similar thing, isn't it? Get out and do something small and all of those small habits Basically, all those small bits that you've done add up and they mean you're more likely to go again the next day if you did 15 minutes today. It is the same with your mental health. I mean, actually, you, let's call it mental fitness for the, rather than mental health because that's such a loaded word. But it, it is exactly the same as your physical fitness. You, you wouldn't expect to go to the gym once or go on one bike ride and be fit forever, would you? You know, you know you have to work at this and it's the small things that you do every day and it's your personal effort and it's what works is what works for you. Well, guess what? Exactly the same applies for your mental fitness. That's an excellent metaphor. Thank you, Richard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So, a fun, fast five questions to finish, Lucy. What is your favourite meal? Um, I, I, yeah, anything by Otto Lenghi. I'm a complete Otto Lenghi addict. Um, probably the meatballs with celeriac when I can get it or anything that involves aubergine. I just love all of his food. Yeah. Your favourite holiday destination? Anywhere I haven't been um, because... I am a real believer that we only have one wild and precious life and we need to make the most of it and I want to see as much as I can. So right now, I would say Sri Lanka because that's where I want to go try and go in the next couple of years. Cool. In a place where you have been, that would be a standout for you? Um, uh, we went up to the Yasawa Islands uh, quite a few years back when Abby was still with us and... It was a pretty magical holiday, and we swum with the um, <laughs> manta rays. I couldn't think what they were called. We swam with the manta rays, which was, yeah, it was a pretty magical life moment. So, yeah, that's probably where I'd go back to with my, with my whanau. Cool. Uh, one of your favourite books you would recommend? The book I am reading at the moment, the most incredible book called Still Life, um, by Sarah, someone, Sarah, um, I'll have to come back to you. Sarah Winman, maybe? Okay. I've got it on Kindle, which always means I can't remember. It is the most beautiful book. So anyone who likes anything like Captain Corelli's Mandolin or Where the Crawdads or, um, I don't know, it, it's just a fantastic tale of some beautiful characters. And it's long, so I'm loving it. I always appreciate a good book. Cool. Mm. What's one of your proudest moments? Oh, um, can I have two? Can I have yes. one work, yeah. one and one <laughs> exercise one? So I guess the um, the adventure exercise one probably was running with hand in hand with my lovely husband on the summer beach last year, having yeah literally got ourselves from one coast to the other, and I never would have done it without him. And it was a pretty special moment because we had a lot of our dear friends turned out to cheer us on and knew that it had been such a mission for me. Um, and then a work one, my PhD was, um, was awarded at the World Congress um, a couple of years back. And oh, wow. I've always had academic imposter syndrome. So for me, that was the moment I really wished my mum was still alive, that I could have shared it with her. Yeah. Incredible, let's see, yeah. And lastly, what is one piece of advice you would tell your 10-year-old self? Okay, I seem to be changing all the rules. Um, I'd like to tell my 25-year-old self, uh, my 10-year-old self, I mean, you're hardly alive. Sorry, 10-year-olds. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, and we have been saying this to the people in their mid-20s that we know and love at the moment, that life Adult life is an adventure and, you know, it has plenty of ups and downs and U-turns and roadblocks and that's okay because in our work we see so many young people paralysed by the pursuit of perfectionism and they sadly feel like every decision and move they make 
has to be perfect. You know, am I going to the right university? Am I hanging out with the right friends? Am I in the right hall? Am I in the right career? Did I choose the right subjects? And I just want to say to them, none of it matters. <laughs> you know, you might think it matters because you want to be a doctor. Well, guess what? You might hate being a doctor. Um, and so none of this stuff matters. What matters is that um, my, my, my PhD was on well-being and defining well-being. And our definition of well-being is feeling good and functioning well. So that's what we all want to do in life is mainly feel good and mainly function well and be with people we love and care about. That's all that matters. So, And different things are going to enable you to do that at different times of your life. And there is no right way or one way to do this. So just get started, give it a go and learn from everything you think and feel and notice about whatever it is you're doing. Mm, I like that. Enjoy the ride and just yeah. yeah, see where it takes you. It's never a destination with life. And what we think no. might work out and have, you know, it's important to have goals, but sometimes what doesn't work out is actually usually the best place to be, takes us somewhere else. Yeah, funny, because I talk about that in my book. I talk about how when the goalposts shift, and that's it, isn't it? So you have goals, but sometimes those bloody goalposts, <laughs> they shift in places to places you never saw coming, didn't want to go down. And so then you have to pick yourself up and, you know, do what you can through those goalposts. And I think that is, yeah, that's really what I would tell my 25-year-old self. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. I have loved talking with you today and so much value in what you've said and I feel a lot of people will really enjoy listening to this. So thank you. And um, yeah, hopefully we can catch up again soon before you take on your next adventure of Coast to Coast. Yeah, I'd love that, Kushla. And to everybody listening, thanks for giving us your time. It's been a real honour for me. <laughs>